If you got your Bibles this morning, how have you accessed those? Matthew 23 is, again, where we're at for this series. If you uh, aren't familiar with God's Word, most of the text will be on the screen behind me today. As Drew mentioned, we're in this series called Pitfall, where we're kind of looking at some of the dangers and traps that can come our way as we try to journey in this relationship with God. And I mentioned last week one of my favorite games growing up on the old Atari 2600, where it just had one stick and one button. Like these games today, you got. I was watching my son play I don't know, Fortnite, what is that? What is, is that the big game now? Like he's got, he wears headphones, he's got like a microphone, like he's strapped in for a video game. And I'm like, I just remember one joystick and one button and I used to have fun. But Pitfall was a great game. You'd find all these different traps and things. And, uh, and through life, we face those as well. Like every day, we're just trying to get around life. I remember when I first started driving, I, uh, I you know, had confidence as a 16-year-old that I was a great wonderful, experienced driver. And uh, my mom had always warned me, like, when it rains, be a little extra careful. I'm like, yeah, whatever, mom, you know, it's just wet, right? And so I remember driving really first time it had rained. And uh, uh, since I'd got my license and I was driving, mom warned me to be a little bit more careful. And I was going and there was like a puddle that was coming up and and I'll just go right through it. Well, I went through it. Well, it wasn't just a puddle of water. It was like a puddle of oil and stuff too. And as soon as I hit that, it was like my car just started floating started hydroplaning and like I started just doing circles like I kept going forward but I was just doing circles right down the road I'm like what is happening like I think I'm about to die or is God just like you know is he taking me into heaven right now like what is happening and I finally like I just slowed down and ended up facing the direction I needed to go my brother was in the car with me he was like you okay like yeah you okay we just kept going and so but it was like these these pitfalls, these things you, you don't know sometimes can sneak up in our life and grab us and spin us in a tailspin. And that can happen spiritually as well. And throughout this year, we've been talking about the simplicity of what it means to follow Christ, how we experience pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope, how we blend this truth of loving God into every part of who we are so that it comes out and how we express our faith through works and To be honest, this is the way following Christ should work, but we often get derailed and fall into these traps that slow our faith journey. And more often than not, it's not just these external, moral, physical sins that trap us up. Most often, these come from spiritual traps of self-righteousness and pride that can slow us down and can trip us up as we try to live the religious life. And the truth is, these pitfalls have been around for generations. They've been around since the time of Christ. It's nothing new today. And Jesus actually spent much time uh, that he was here uh, dealing with spreading hope and encouraging people. But he also spent a vast majority of his time pushing back on the self-righteousness and the religious systems that were actually moving people away from God. And that's what we find in Matthew 23. And last week we learned that in Matthew 22, Jesus had come in and physically cleansed the temple like knocked everything out, turned over the tables, got angry. And now the next day he has come back and he's teaching and he is now intellectually and spiritually cleansing this temple. And he starts spouting these woes to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders of the day, these judgments, these things that are saying, beware, beware, beware of these traps. And he starts listing them. And that's what we're working through in this series is understanding the meaning behind those. Last week, we looked at the first two woes or the first two traps of manipulation. The first one is manipulation where it adds rules, regulations to the commands of God that he never intended. And it corrupts 
the system and it actually makes people think that grace is just always out of their reach. They manipulate and twist the system so we feel like we can't quite get to God's grace. They dangle the carrot and manipulate and corrupt the system. And then the the second one was the, the trap of guilt, constantly reminding people of their sin and their shortcomings instead of the grace and forgiveness of God. And it keeps people thinking that they owe God something and they can never quite get their sin debt repaid. And this leads to a system of control where people in spiritual authority create these systems where there's high penalty for sin and everybody must pay or else. And the payment for sin becomes higher than even the payment that God has already made, Christ has already made for sin. It creates a system of control. And Jesus, last week, he labeled people who do this a very nice nickname. He called them children of hell. I mean, what a wonderful way to, if you do these, guess what you are, right? I mean, this wasn't just Jesus calling somebody names. He was actually saying, look, if you believe that guilt and manipulation are what bring you to salvation, you are on the wrong path. You're heading not toward a pathway to heaven. You're actually heading on a pathway to hell. He's like, wake up. This is not what God is about. So those were the first two. Like, if I would have been the religious leaders of the day, I'd have been like, all right, you got me. I'm done. Like, please, can you stop there? But Jesus does not stop. He goes on a few more verses. And uh, so we're going to pick up this scathing expose of the religious leaders of the day as he continues to pronounce these woes. And we're going to look at them and see what these pitfalls are as well that we can learn from. So if you got your Bible, Matthew 23, we're going to pick it up in verse 16. And uh, we're going to read 16 through 22 to start with. And it says this. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anybody swears by the gold of the temple, then he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by the oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, before we go any further, let me bring you some context. Because this, what he's dealing with here is not something that we normally Like I mentioned last week, we don't typically go around pronouncing woes upon people. We typically don't go around swearing oaths daily to one another either. Like, I swear to you this day, I will be home by 5 p.m. Like, that's not how we typically approach our day. But what was this? There was a practice of taking oath and making swears. In that day, there were no real true legal contracts. When somebody negotiated a sale or made an exchange or made an agreement, there were typically no written transactions of the records. And so instead, in, the, in these times, uh, when an agreement or an oath was needed to be taken, it, two things were done. It was taken in front of other people, and it was also taking something of deep value and swearing upon that to bind the oath. So someone may swear, hey, by, by my, my cattle, my, my herd of cattle, I agree to pay you a certain price for this land. And so if they didn't pay the price for that land, guess what they lost? They lost that herd of cattle. And there were a group of people who heard that, agreed with that, and would help enforce that. And they would lose the cattle, and they would still not get the land. If you've ever bought a house or apartments, it's like putting earnest money down. 
You put it down there with the intent to buy, and if you choose not to buy it, you back out of it for whatever reason, you lose that money. And so these were oaths. They would swear by something. And so just imagine in a deeply religious culture what the power of swearing by the temple or swearing by the altar or even by heaven would mean. It was basically saying this, I am making this oath to you, and if I do not follow through, I'm willing to give up my right to go to the temple, to make sacrifices, to even experience the goodness of God from heaven. In this culture, this was the highest form of a swear or an oath that you can make. My standing before God in our community is on the line if I don't follow through. This is what he's talking about here. This was a practice that was common in those days. And so when somebody said, I, big deal, like there's something really I'm committing to and I'm going to swear by the temple, swear by the altar, or swear by heaven, they're saying, really, I'm putting my whole reputation, my whole livelihood, my whole standing in this community online that this is what I will do and I will stand by my word. So what do you think the religious leaders did? They twisted this, right? They twisted this practice and began to use it for their own gain. They started telling the people that it isn't enough just to swear by the temple or the altar themselves, that they must swear by the things in them or on them. The thing that the temple itself didn't have value, the altar itself didn't have value, what you actually would bring for the sacrifice or what you would bring as a gift to the temple would often be what is true value. And this leads to the first chapter that I want us to see today out of this. And we see in verse 16 when it says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by the oath, and it's the trap of infatuation. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. I want to go all the way back to First Chronicles. In the book of First Chronicles, God gave David the plans for how to build the temple. So if people are going to be swearing by the temple, we need to understand what that means. There were very specific plans about the dimensions, how it was supposed to be built, rooms, objects, all those kind of, it was a complete set of blueprints. Now, David didn't build the temple. Eventually, Solomon, his son, is the one who built the first temple. And while the original temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, eventually they rebuilt a second temple. It was built in the same place with the same plans. The blueprints were not lost. So they rebuilt the temple in the same place. And this was the temple that was around during Jesus' time. But instead of leaving God's original blueprints alone, the religious leaders in association with the Romans began to add valuable things to the, to the temple to give it more prominence and prestige. They just didn't rebuild it what it, what it was. What they did? They were like, let's make it better. Let's make it a little bigger and better this time. Second version, version 2.0, right? So they expanded. They built this whole mound thing. That's what you go see today was this incredible expansion of the temple. But even then, it was lacking something. It was lacking, actually, the heart of the temple, which was the Ark of the Covenant, the, the thing that the Jewish people believed is where the presence of God dwelt and would come meet with them. It was missing. The thing that God's presence was missing, but what they did instead, instead of dealing with that issue, they simply made the exterior greater and grander. They wanted to, to prove that, that they were serious about following God, that they would put this gold ornate, they would build statues, add different arenas to it, just to show how serious they were. I remember when I was growing up, I was uh, my mom and dad were notorious for trading cars all the time. I don't think we owned a car like more than two years. Like that, mom, they're driving like 
We'd just be in the car, and she'd be like, Tommy, let's stop and look at the cars. And I, I knew, like, we were going home with some kind of new car. And I remember one day we were in there, and my mom was like, she didn't really see anything she wanted. And my dad was like, well, I'm just going to go in and talk to the guy for a minute, which you never do, right? Like, if you've ever been to a car salesman, there's no one-minute talk. And so we're all sitting there. My dad's talking. Well, eventually, we find something, and my dad makes an offer on the car. And it was, you know, lower than price. And the guy's like, well, I don't know what my boss is going to think about that. And he says, I'll tell you what. And my dad had on a gold watch. He said, why don't you let me take that watch back to my boss to let him know just how serious you are. And my dad's like, are you crazy? Like, what? And we got up and walked out. And it, but it's like, it's exactly like this. They were like, let's show how serious we are, God, by, by incredibly expanding and beautifying the exterior of the temple without actually worrying about what's at the heart of the temple and how it was missing. And it's actually been documented that one of the ways that they would get the gold to make these beautiful new adornments was not through taxation, because taxation could only happen from the Romans. But another way they would get it is through oath-taking. And so here's what would happen. Somebody would take an oath by the temple, and they would say, well, great, for us to kind of stamp and validify that, you know what would make it really meaningful is if you would make another gift to the temple. If you make a gift of gold to the temple, or a gift of this to the temple, so we can make the temple more beautiful. Like it was basically dedicating an area for them to say, that's what I took an oath by. Not what it was originally designed for, not the presence of God, but this exterior aspect of it. And it, it was missing what? It was missing true sacrifices. It was missing a true uh, willing offering, and now it was based around something. It was placing more value on the external brick, stone, and gold of the temple than the internal value of the presence of God in the temple. And Jesus was calling out this practice as woeful, dangerous, and worthy of judgment. And he was using, people were using the value of God for their own gain and own glory, and he was saying, woe to you. And here's what would happen. This is they would begin to find, here's what it would lead it to, we'd begin to find value in our external accomplishments. This is what it led to, us wanting to find value in our external accomplishment. The trap the Pharisees and the scribes fell into, we can fall into as well. This trap of becoming infatuated with the things of God instead of with God himself. They are more impressed with God's temple than they were with God's presence. Now, how do we recognize this trap of infatuation? One, it begins with an elevation of the physical over the spiritual. The elevation of the physical over the spiritual. We start to think about the things that we can touch and see as having more value than the spirit and the presence of God. And it simply then makes God a representation of the work of our hands instead of the truth that everything is a work of God's hands. We start to create a God in our image versus remembering that we were created in his image. It elevates personal success over personal sacrifice. It diminishes the value of God's presence and elevates the value of spiritual practices. And it creates this perceived superiority due to external accomplishments that I've done. That's how you can recognize this. That's how you can recognize this infatuation, this trap that we get caught in. Is It's about the physical nature of things, personal success, spiritual practice, and superiority because of what I have done. How does this impact our lives today? Here's what we do. We end up spending more time doing things for God than we do spending time with God. We just get busy. We serve out of obligation. We just do it so we can say we did it versus actually doing it out of love and out of response to God. 
We elevate tangible objects and practices created by God as more valuable than God himself. We create these sacred objects. Like, you know, churches are filled with these sometimes. Ours is not because we meet at a school, you know, but they're filled with these, these sacred objects that add value, but they're, they're really just stone and brick and, and mortar. I want you to understand, there. I can go online and buy a major league baseball, a baseball that is the same as those that are spent or used in the major league. I can order one of those on Amazon for $16, right? It'll be in my house in two days. But the most expensive baseball that has ever been sold is Mark McGuire's 70th home run ball, and it sold for over $3 million. It's the exact same baseball. There's only something that added value to it. It was the one. It's now a sacred object, right? Somebody paid $3 million for that, which is insanity to me. But you look at these things, and if you held them up, besides one maybe being a little dirty than the other, they would look exactly the same. You open them up, it's the exact same thing inside. We've just ascribed value to it because of a practice, because of an experience. And we find ourselves doing that as well. We start ascribing our spiritual significance to these practices or these tangible objects that we own. And we view spiritual authority as our ability to sacrifice for God instead of experiencing the power of his sacrifice. We start saying, God, look what I'm doing for you instead of remembering what God has done for me. And then we get to where this develops a spiritual superiority complex because we compare our level of sacrifice and our level of commitment to others. So I look at somebody else and that, well, you know, they're not at church as often as I am. I don't see that person putting any money in the offering plate. You know, I made sure everybody saw me put my $20 in. You know, it's like we, we start comparing what we do. And we have this level of spirituality, spiritual authority and superiority based on our practices are things that we can look back and say, look at what I've done. And where does this lead us? This danger leads us to entitlement. Entitlement. We start to think that our works, our deeds, and the things we have done for God make him owe us something. That we now are on, need to be on the receiving end of the blessings of God because we've done something for him, so now he owes us. Our value is in works, not his grace. I mean, think about this. If you, if you tune in to religion and televangelist or anything and that amount of time like they start telling you why they need certain things i mean there's a guy who's basically said you know i deserve a private jet so that i can pop around different places and spread the word of god i need that right i this is because i'm sacrificing other things for god give me a personal jet and he's like taking offerings to do that Please don't give to that, all right? Like, if I ever stand up in front of you, you're welcome to take me and throw me out if I start telling you I need a private jet. But uh, I, I've actually sat in a room with pastors before where they've gone around and they, they're basically having this contest where they're talking about that size, the size of their office, how big their office is, how many books, how big this is, and big that is, and they start comparing or how many buildings they have, how many square foot, how much they spent on their buildings, and I'm like, whoa, I really want to say woe to you, right? <laughs> because I'm like, this is not right. This is not anything about what we should be about for Christ. This is the woe in this saying. Stop equating your spiritual importance, your spiritual value, your spiritual standing before God by what you have accomplished. It's, it says in the Bible that it's wood, hay, and stubble. It'll burn away. The things of God are what 
will last. And I want you to know if, if this is what you think biblical Christianity is, is doing as much as you can for God, I want to redirect your passion and pursuits back to the living God and away from rituals, practices, and tasks that are empty. Would you move your focus from the task and the rituals to the rightful throne of God and the one who can, the only one who can redeem us, save us, and restore us? And if you are using these tactics to grow a Christian church or lead people, then I want you to know what you're actually doing. You're actually stealing the joy of God's presence from people who are desperately seeking his grace and love. People who want to get to the heart of the temple. And you're saying, no, 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 no. It's about the exterior, the outside. And you're making them make oaths and swearing the things that have no value instead of missing the thing of true value. That's the first woe, the first trap today. Now look at Matthew 23, 23 and 24, and it'll give us the second one. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. Jesus has just such a way with words. And before we go any further, let me give you a little context on this because he mentions this thing about tithing mint and dill and cumin. And Jesus just didn't pick these things for no reason. He didn't just like, you know, I don't know, what spices did I put on my burrito today? That wasn't what he did. These three spices were actually used daily in the household during Jesus' time to create a, create a sweet aroma. And so just think about it for a minute. There was no plumbing, no running water. That means there were no toilets, showers, trash chutes, any of those things. All the smells of human life, good and bad, were pre- I mean, like we experience this every day in the city, right? I mean, you walk down the city and you get to experience, you know, all kinds of the smells of the human life there. I, I made the mistake one time. I'd been, only been in the city a few months and I was with somebody and uh, that was just visiting. They were like, hey, there's an elevator. Let's take the elevator in the subway. And so we get in the elevator in the subway. I felt like I walked into a toilet, right? I mean, I was like, I'm not sure what this squishy stuff I'm standing on is. I know what this smell is. I want to get off of here as quick as I can. And so what they would do is they would mix these spices together, and actually a a pinch of it in different places around the house would help neutralize smells. And so I created some today. I didn't buy this on the way to church uh, this morning. I uh, had a distinct smell as well. But this is ground up uh, mint, cumin, and dill. And I'm going to leave it sitting outside because if you want to, when you leave, you can take a step. And this, they would actually take this mixture. I'm not sure this is exactly how they mixed it. I don't know that. They don't have a recipe at the Bible. But, but they would take it and spread it around their house and it would deodorize the smells of their house. And so I want you to experience that because here I want you to understand what he's doing here. He's saying, look, you're telling them that they need to tithe off of everything. Like they know the law. Look, you have 10 cattle, you give one to the temple. 10 bushels of hay, you give one to the temple. But he's saying, look, the Pharisees had so invaded their lives that they're like, even the little twigs of dill and mint and other things outside that you just use to sanitize your house, make sure when you pull off nine leaves, you pick one leaf for the temple. If you pull a little nine twigs for this, one twig for the temple, it will become so evasive in their lives. Every little twig, every little thing. And I want you to see what they did. They had made the practice of God, worshiping God, 
difficult. Not a joy, not freedom. It wasn't out of joy and thanksgiving that people were tithing to God. Instead, it had now become a weight around their necks every day to live up to the standards to support the work of the temple. So what is this trap? When he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. This is the trap of invasion. Invasion. Instead of helping people understand that following God and worshiping him were a way to experience the abundant life, a life of freedom, a life separated from guilt and shame, the Pharisees had created a religious system that invaded every aspect of a person's life to create more religious boundaries, limitation, and taxing expectations that could never be accomplished. The people had stopped looking to God as Lord of their life and simply looked at him as this guy who was lording rules and regulations over them. This religion had invaded their lives so much that it created more of a headache for them instead of allowing the Lord to invade their life and give them hope for their heartache. They had changed the rules. They were worried about a tithe off of this versus justice, mercy, righteousness, faithfulness, the weightier things, not the smallest of things. It was placing more value on these external practices of lawful adherence to rules rather than the internal value of having a heart submitted and surrendered to God. Worrying about the smell of the house than the smell of your heart. Submitted heart that finds joy in justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Where does this trap lead? It leads to us finding value in our personal achievements. The trap the Pharisees and the scribes fell into and were setting out for other people was this trap of people telling people that spiritual practices that should invade every area of our life are more important than the presence of God invading our heart. And the more impressed we are with, they became more impressed with their ability to follow the law than they were with God's ability to allow them to experience freedom through mercy and grace. How do we recognize this trap of invasion? It begins when we elevate practice over the practical. I believe following God is a practical thing. Our lives should naturally fall into a rhythm. It's not a burden to follow God. It's out of joy that I get to do that. And we elevate practices to a point that they don't even become practical anymore. I think we missed the point. It creates jobs and tasks that I must accomplish daily in my life to get myself in a position to hear and receive from God. It turns this into a to-do list. It elevates personal practice over personal submission. It diminishes the value of God's provision in our life and elevates our spiritual inadequacies and flaws. And it creates this prescription for grace. It tells us how we get to grace versus knowing that grace has been fully and freely bestowed upon us. How does this impact your life today? Here's how it impacts mine when I get caught in this. I spend more time and effort on the task list for God than I actually do developing intimacy with God. You know what? I can, I can read my Bible. I can have a moment of prayer. I can have a time of meditation and have no intimacy with God. I can just be doing it to check off the list that I did it this morning. I did this, that, that. I'm good to go. I said my prayer. I read my Bible. I wrote in my journal three sentences. I'm done. I've had my moment with God. That's not intimacy. That's task. And then we elevate this value of repeatable practices and expect the same result every time in our life. So that one time I prayed and I really felt peace about it. So if I just say those same words, then I must receive the same peace 
again. Instead of understanding that the practical nature is just pouring your heart out to God versus this repeatable practice. And we view spiritual authority as our ability to commit to certain habits and rituals instead of to actually understand that spiritual authenticity in our life is where authority comes from. And then we develop a spiritual superiority complex because we can quote more scripture than somebody else, pray more profoundly than other people. I've read the Bible more than other people. I've read this commentary. I understand this more than others. And we start to put ourselves in that. And here's what happens when we give into this trap or we get caught in this trap. And it's, it's the true, it does entrap us. It's entrapment. We think that we owe God something. And no matter how much we pay, the debt never goes down. If you just, let me tell you, if you have $2,000 of credit card debt, normal interest rate, and you just pay the minimum every uh, every month, you might have a clue of how long it would take you to pay that off. $2,000? 30 years. 30 years. If you just pay the minimum. Some of you are like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, but like, that just, you ever pay that, and you're like, I paid this last month. It looks more expensive than it was last month. It never goes down. And that's what this entrapment creates for us. Like, I have to do another practice. I have to do it more. I have to pray longer, read the Bible more, journal more, memorize more scripture so that one day I'll be able to stand up in front of God. And it's this trap, this entrapment. And if you think this is what biblical Christianity is, out today I want to redirect your efforts from please trying to please God out of duty to actually wanting to please him out of gratitude. It's not duty. It's gratitude. It's out of this grateful heart that I want to spend time with him, that I want to encourage, be encouraged by his word, that I want to spend moments focusing only on him. And if you're using these tactics to, to grow a Christian church or to lead other people, I want you to hear what you're really doing. You're actually hampering people's intimacy with God for those who are desperately seeking his mercy and provision. You're cutting them off by equating their life, spiritual life, to practices versus the person of God. I want to ask you today, have you stumbled into these traps? Have you stumbled into the trap of infatuation? Are you swearing by the gold and the gifts on the altar? You're saying, look what I have built. Look what I've done for God. Look what I've accomplished for you, God. Look at the influence I have for you. Are you trying to impress others with your spiritual acumen, with your how good you have become, how much you have done. Because that's where this trap leads with infatuation. We try to impress others by accumulating all these spiritual things. Or have you gotten caught in the trap of invasion? Are you tithing on the mint, the dill, and the cumin? Are you saying, look at what I've sacrificed. Look at the way I disciplined myself for you, God. Look at how much I'm committed to what you do. I do this and this and this every day. Are you trying to impress God? Do you think your life is about trying to impress God? Both of these are traps. My question for you today is this. Have you developed an entitled view of the gospel? By thinking that you can impress others with your gold and your gifts, have you fallen trap to the trap of becoming infatuated with the things of God in such a way that you have forgotten what it's like to actually love God? Not with gifts and trinkets, but with your whole heart. Or maybe have you become entrapped with the task of following God? Have you fallen trapped of invading your life with so many spiritual practices and to-do lists that you have forgotten what it's like to actually experience the love 
of God in the depths of your own soul. If you go back to these verses, there's one word, if you were listening, that he used continually, like child of hell, that he used last time. There was one word he kept using to describe these guys this time, and it was blind. Blind. He said, you're blind guides, you're blind fools, you're blind men. And again in verse 25, he says, you're blind guides. These traps of infatuation and invasion will blind you. Entitlement will blind one eye, entrapment will blind the other eye. And Jesus today is wanting to remove these scales and set us free from that. To give us a vision to look ahead and to see his grace and mercy are enough for you. Do not become entrapped in the idea that you think you have to do something to earn God's love, to deserve his grace. It is free for you today. Will you take the blinders off. We open up your eyes, get out of these traps and see the goodness and gracious nature of God and stop trying to impress others or to impress him. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me? As we have a moment here, just to sit into this and allow this truth to penetrate our heart a bit. This I know has weighed heavy on my heart this week as I've prepared this. I've seen this, these traps in my life way too often. I've seen myself stumble and fall, get caught in these and held back, trying to live my spiritual life in such a way to simply impress God or impress other people. And I want to ask you today, would you let God take these blinders off, these things that are blinding us, this sin, this things that we become a slave to, this entrapment, would you let go of that and just get a hold of him? Stop worrying about the outside of the temple and re-engage in the heart of the temple. Stop worrying about trying to tithe off of the little things. Make sure every little detail is done and instead make sure those weightier, heavy things are what's setting us free. I don't know what God's doing in your heart today. Maybe he's prompting you to some kind of response and You can reach directly out to him. You can pray to him. You can surrender your heart and your soul to him. Say, God, I need this. I am trapped in this, and I need your help out. There are people all around this congregation that would love to talk and pray with you as well. And Find one of us after the service and just say, I need prayer today. I need you to walk with us. Maybe you're here with a spouse or a family member or a friend, and you would just, as the service concludes, you would reach out and say, hey, would you pray with me this week? Would you walk with me out of these traps? Father, we are yours today. It's not uh, by our own deeds, by the beauty of the exterior of what we've done that we get to come before you. It's not because we follow the rules so well that we get to be in your presence. It's because you, because of your grace, your mercy, your hope that you want to pour into our lives. It's God, let us live that out today. Take the blinders off and let us walk in that freedom.